This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Phil Goldberg, author of American Beta, our podcast, Spirit Matters, that's found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Mr. Stephen Dynan, who is the founder and CEO of the Shift Network uh, and a member of the Transformational Leadership Council and Evolutionary Leaders. He's a graduate of Stanford University and his latest book, uh, Sacred America, Sacred World. Uh, Stephen, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. It's, thank you so much for having me. Stephen, uh, we want to talk uh, about your new book, which is very relevant to our uh, current climate, and um, also your work with Shift Network. But uh, before we get into the details, perhaps you could fill in our listeners with uh, something about your own personal path and what brought you to the the work you're doing now and the and the focus of your book. Sure, I mean the the, the shorthand version is I I studied sciences in undergrad and was in the kind of neurobiology direction, but then went through a deeper shift and decided to focus more on the spiritual and psychological dimensions, the kind of deeper realms of meaning, mind and soul eventually led me to the uh, California Institute of Integral Studies, got a East-West, uh, master's in East-West psychology, and then that led to Esalen Institute, which led to a uh, download, really, and during a meditation retreat that I needed to create this global network that would be interconnecting hubs of awakening consciousness and helping to empower people to make a shift to a new way of being. So I got that download. It took about 10 years of uh, false starts and uh, half, you know, halfway attempts to get it off the ground, and now it's grown into a um, sizable global operation. We've got about 50,000 customers in 140 countries. Well, Stephen, uh, you write uh, that America has sacred pur- purpose, and I believe you're saying that based upon the founding fa- fathers who were deeply spiritual and highly principled. Uh, are these ideals still anywhere to be found today? And I say that uh, today is, uh, it, it's, uh, we're in August 2016 before, for the uh, presidential race uh, between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And some people, uh, and maybe rightly so, feel that the spiritual side of American politics has all but uh, disappeared. Well, I think it's it's certainly gone underground in certain ways. You know, when we are in very uh, combative situations, we tend to armor up and we tend to not to show our vulnerability. And a lot of times uh, the heart, heart and soul matters tend to be some of our most intimate and vulnerable things. And so it can be harder to show up with uh, sincere love and sincere commitment to evolutionary uh, growth when there's, a, when there's a really combative climate for that. So I think one of the p- issues that I really point to that we need to address in the book is, is how do we evolve a healthier political climate, one that is, is established on a ground of being of deeper respect and really honoring the viewpoints of the other to, to, to ultimately to, to hold diversity, political diversity, with a sense of real unity at the core. And that's where I think it is important that we bring our spiritual practice into the public sector and into the public sphere and, and see politics as something like an advanced practice for spiritual growth. That we, can, we have all sorts of raw material to work with, a lot of projections, a lot of <clears throat> intense energies and decisions that we, we, we can react to in different ways and to kind of work our way through those reactions and to, to find the divinity in all people in all positions and then create, a, establish a different ground of being of connecting that is more uh, collaborative, that's more loving, 
when we can do that, we can hold the, the diversity of political strategies for how do we grow to the next level with uh, a lot more compassion and empathy, and ultimately it's far more productive to do that. So as an example, this year I, I traveled to both the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention, really to sort of be in my own form of political cross-training where I'm learning to see and embrace and honor a whole diversity of viewpoints, even while I have my own and I have my particular orientation of like what this what needs to happen in this election. But I also feel like it's been important for me as a, a more progressive Democrat to to really deepen my appreciation, understanding of conservatives and conservative positions so that I can be a healing bridge between sides. And, and so my book is, is very transpartisan in the sense that it's not it's not about a part it's not about party first. It's really about uh, putting the evolution of our country first and recognizing that every political orientation brings something to the table for that. Stephen, I like um, the term transpartisan. Um, I, I tend to like any word that has trans in it because <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think of, you know, that we... Uh, uh, transcend is more uh, evolutionary and more progressive and more creative than just cohabitation or or going you know with with the status quo. Um, but people might have a little difficulty understanding what what transpartisan means. Could you could you define that and uh, and and say what it what it's not and how people normally react to the term? Yeah, well, transpartisan doesn't mean nonpartisan. Nonpartisan is you, you don't have any party affiliation. Right. Transpartisan can be, you can be a transpartisan progressive, you can be a transpartisan conservative, transpartisan libertarian, transpartisan green. It's really just recognizing that the ground of our identity is larger than a partisan label that uh, that we that we want to uh, commit to pr principles for engagement that allow us to, for for diversity to be constructive and that we ultimately see the uh, dialogue, debate with other political orientations as an opportunity for growth and deepening and learning rather than simply uh, a kind of a battle to be won. And, uh, and so, you know, the transpartisan movement has a lot of different wings to it. It's kind of a, it's a fairly young movement in certain ways, but it, it's, it applies more ancient principles that, that really were in place from our founders. Our founders were worried about overly identifying with party labels and they could see that could really corrupt the fabric of the early democracy and it's something that many different leaders through history have warned us against to get too identified with partisan um, positions because then we're then we start to put the interests of winning a short-term skirmish over the interests of serving the larger uh, populace and the larger citizens and so that ultimately diminishes everybody so so the transpartisan is really calling forth a, a, uh, a kind of relationship to the political process that is more mature, that's more evolutionary, that's more respectful, that is grounded in sacred principles and a sense of real unity that transcends uh, a party label. Uh, Stephen, how much of your uh, transpartisanship beliefs uh, or, uh, and what you advocate in regard to that based upon uh, the teachings of Freemasonry, which which you talk about, and uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, many of our founding fathers were uh, very involved in Freemasonry. I think principles of uh, Freemasonry uh, were involved in the the structure of most of the buildings in Washington D.C., the government buildings way back when. 
Uh, were you very influenced about, by Freemasonry? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Because my knowledge uh, of Freemasonry is very limited. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of expertise. I was more pointing to that as a as one of the streams that we don't always think about. Uh -huh. So we're we're more aware of these streams of enlightenment thinking from the um, from Europe as being influential in the founding of America. We're not we don't tend to hear as much about the the more esoteric streams such as the Freemasons. You know, George Washington was sworn in on a Masonic Bible, and all the lodges were key places to ferment the ideas of that led to the revolution, and there was very much a desire Sir Francis Bacon, who was one of the preeminent uh, scientific minds in Europe, urged people to go to America to create the, quote, New Atlantis. So there was this, there's this sense of which the, the, the culture of, of Europe had gotten too ossified and too structured with, uh, with the uh, aristocracies and the monarchies to actually allow this new template of possibility. So a lot of people did move to America as a, as a vehicle to sort of say, let's create a new template for what human civilization can look like. And that, that impulse really fed into uh, what led to the American Revolution. There was also another stream that I think is equally important and, and interesting, which is the Iroquois Confederation. Many of the founding fathers were very connected to the Iroquois who had created a successful uh, feder federation of five different nations that were lived peacefully together for several hundred years and they really designed this kind of system of you know basically nations and then a kind of a confederation that that, that subsumed it um and that that was sort of that was a template for the relationship between the states and the federal government and it was really different than anything that existed in in europe at the time so there was there there were uh representatives from the iroquois confederation that that uh were present at in in the early phases of uh, of the constitutional um, constitutional hall, mm -hmm. actually Independence Hall, and and so 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 these these different streams. I think that when you look at those things, that it really brings in the sense of like there was a yearning being expressed to integrate the best of what was known about how to create a society that 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 allowed for more of human potential to blossom. And that was something that the esoteric societies were interested in, something that the indigenous societies were interested in, enlightenment thinkers. So there was a sense of like, let's let's create this new template. And 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 there was there's a lot of very interesting things that have to do with kind of higher guidance being part of the founding of the country, and and um, and that there was there was a sense of like that the unseen realms were part of of directing the process of creating creating uh, a vehicle really for advancing consciousness on planet earth is that what you are pointing to uh in your book in sacred america sacred world when uh you say uh, you speak of the importance of returning to the sacred principles of of, of america's uh, forefathers um what are those principles and um how how would you sum them up well, I think there, it's not like you have to look that deeply. It's things like liberty, equality, and justice for all, and uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, or forming a more perfect union. All of these are essentially higher spiritual principles about how do we align ourselves with deeper truth and, and, and a higher reality in many ways. And so the enshrinement of these principles in our founding codes and our songs and our, our culture really represent a kind of a sacred inheritance. And we often don't think about it that way, but 
but it really is. It's, 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 it's about going beyond personal awakening transformation to creating a society that is built on, on high and noble principles. Mm-hmm. And it's taken some time for us to fully enact it and, and grow them to the next level to, to really make equality, for instance. Equality w- was a principle that was built in from the beginning, but we, we were nowhere near it putting it into practice. And so it took the, you know, it took the Civil War and, 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 and abolishing slavery, and it took giving women the right to vote, and it took the civil rights marches. There's a lot of things that, that it's taken to begin to fully express and manifest equality as a sacred principle. But uh, but I think it's important that we relate to these in this way because it actually creates a, a deeper sense of connection that transcends party identification because it's a shared inheritance. You know, there, we can think of these of a shared spiritual inheritance that are, is part of the design of our country. And then we also have um, certain marker points in our history that are where we really did trans we transform the previous conditions and go to the next level. And that that's, that's part of our shared inheritance. And the reasons why it's important we relate to it that way is, is because it's, it helps us trace that there's this longer mission that we're only partially, we've only partially accomplished. If we're just focused on economic self-interest and making a nice life for ourselves and padding our own bank accounts or whatever it is, we lose that sense of a kind of a, a grand trajectory for the United States and, and that we're moving, we're only partially complete in birthing this larger mission, which I see in, in, in phrases like e pluribus unum, mm-hmm. out of many one. Uh, and so there's, there's a way of, that we're, when we're at our best, we're holding the oneness and the, the trajectory towards holding this larger whole and respecting and honoring the dignity of all human beings and ultimately creating the society that, that works for all. Right. Yeah, we're holding that as this kind of like North Star that we're moving towards and that it's been part of our whole trajectory of evolution and that, and that that's something that unites us uh, and that we all share. Right. Uh, Stephen, in, in regard to moving toward this North Star, which is certainly my hope, how do you explain uh, Donald Trump being the uh, presidential candidate for one of the two major uh, political parties in the United States? Well, I think there's a lot of levels you can look at it. You know, I think it's, it's easy to be, in a, I'm a progressive Democrat, and I you know, I'm certainly share some serious concerns about, about Donald Trump. But if you step back a couple notches and assume that there might be a deeper logic in why his candidacy has emerged at a particular time and, and the qualities of it, you could, you could see that he's kind of, in some ways, uh, be, become a, a caricature or exaggeration of um, a kind of a hyper-masculine patterning. And one of the theses in my book is that in order for America to go to the next level, we have to rebalance the masculine and feminine in our culture. We ended up with, because the women weren't enfranchised for the half of our history and, and there's been a lot of imbalance in the, in the power structures, we've had a, a real imbalance between the masculine and feminine um, qualities in our society, which leads, feeds into this martial um, kind of climate where everybody, like politics is warfare and competition. So in part of, part of this rebalancing of the masculine and feminine, sometimes it's necessary to bottom out, if you will, with uh, an exaggeration of the other side. Now, I'm not saying that Donald doesn't have any feminine qualities, but, but there's a way in which he surfaced a kind of a hyper-masculine approach to, but, to many different things. Yeah, but he, let, he, let, me, let me just he, interrupt he hit you. He first yeah. and harder. Yeah. Let, let me just ask, is racism, is bigotry, if you uh, uh, believe that that's part of, of his message, does that have anything to do with masculinity? Is that coming from some deeper shadow side of America? 
Yeah, well, so, so if you think about it this way, is that the shadow side, not just of masculinity, but the, the way masculinity played out in the last era was, was about masculine dominance. And in a world where there's masculine dominance, the, the most important thing for safety and security is to get to the top of the whatever pecking order is, because otherwise you're going to get screwed in different ways. And so, and so part of the whole psychology of, of, of the patriarchal era was it's like getting to the top of a dominance hierarchy so that you're safer in many ways. And so you want to have that alpha dominant kind of energy. And so that expresses in terms, they can, they can have a, a shadow side of racism, suppressing minorities, ridiculing people who are, there, there's, there's an establishing of dominance that, that's really important. So if you look at him, is so much of what he does, I think it's in some ways it's less about just being intrinsically racist or intrinsically um, bigoted in different ways or even misogynistic. It's more about establishing dominance. Mm. And so by ridiculing other people, he puts himself as the big, strong alpha that people trust. And so trust to be their kind of uh, attack person and that he's going to protect and, and others who look to that. So, so I think that by creating an exaggerated version of that, by making it very explicit rather than coded, I think that ultimately it's, it's basically, um, some people have, <laughs> have said it's not a very pleasant image, but it's sort of like popping a zit in a way that there's like a whole pus of like the patriarchal kind of patterning that's getting surfaced in a very ugly way. And, Underneath that is there, there's something deeper that wants to be born. I think there's a healthier, more evolved, more enlightened Republican Party. And I think that his candidacy by ultimately surfacing this and then having it lose, I think, likely, likely lose at the, at the ballot box in a dramatic way, actually could release and eventually dissipate some of this energy that's been kind of held in the subconscious in a way of, of the country. And, and so, so I think that in, in, a, in a funny kind of way, he may actually be helping to mm-hmm. open the pathway to a healthier, more masculine, feminine balance culture by, by creating such a caricature of the imbalances of what we're, we're moving out of and surfacing a lot of the repressed energies and uh, positions that, that we've kind of had a lid on for a while but haven't really resolved. Thanks for that uh, perspective, Stephen. Um, I'm curious about uh, your experience at the conventions where you were just uh, a week or two uh, past them, and um, not many people I know even watched both on television, let alone attended both unless they were uh, journalists who were on assignment. So I'm very curious what your experience was and what surprised you most and what 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 you learned that you didn't know before. It's mm. a great question. Well, um, first of all, uh, there was there were some really beautiful forms of love activism that I that I got to participate in and witness in Cleveland that I think were give us important clues about how to engage politics in a more evolutionary way. So when I arrived on Sunday, there I almost immediately went to a gathering that was called uh, in Circle the City with Love. Had been sourced by Sister Rita and some other nuns of Sisters of Saint Joseph, and they enrolled many different spiritual groups and churches and different communities. And at the end of the day, there was something like 4,000 people who created one continuous circle of love across the, this uh, Hope Memorial Bridge, and um, and basically for 30 minutes, just in a meditative way, just beamed love into the city. It was very beautiful, and uh, and there were people from all every religion, every race. 
the police officers themselves who were supposed to be guarding it like were joined in and grabbed hands and it was it was this really unifying event and everybody had stand stand for love t-shirts now you don't know what kind of effect that has but it was i think it was interesting that they were anticipating up to a thousand arrests a day and there was about five and the washington post said you know we were expecting riots and we got a block party and and so throughout the week there were people who were really being um being agents of love in the whole thing they uh some friends had created t-shirts that said love on legs and pink t-shirts and they they were had signs free hugs they were just going around loving everybody up, loving delegates, loving protesters, loving police, and I, you know, there, so there was there, the whole thing was had a more collegial atmosphere than you expect. I mean, sure, there was there was some of the vitriol that, but there, but there wasn't there wasn't violence. There wasn't really um, that level of dysfunction that we are scared to happen. And uh, and so I think that was really heartening, actually, to to see, and it, it was um, beautiful, I think, to see that in Cleveland as well, and the way Cleveland responded to hosting the event. Right. And I think that's so important because when you know, the, violence violence almost always takes us backwards. Um, so when we have violence, it's it triggers our our core brainstem fears of existential danger, and so then we're more likely to make bad decisions and lead go backwards and make decisions on fear so it's really important that we have these kind of unifying spiritually based love centered movements that help to keep the human or american family together while we're going through a very intense uh election right that has a lot of surfacing of old stuff there's a i mean not only on the donald trump side but we also Mm -hmm. have um there's a lot of covert uh misogyny that gets that gets that's being surfaced by having the first potential woman president as well that people aren't even aware of that there's there's a deep fears and resistance to that and so some of the the level of intensity of attack of Hillary I think is definitely fueled by that mm-hmm. so there's so there's a way in which we're surfacing a lot of a lot of deep angry polarized energy and so we need to have a strong enough container to hold it and so some of us who are you know deeper on a spiritual path and have practiced more i think part it's incumbent on us to to in a way hold the container of love that keeps people together and that they can help to uh prevent a sort of breakdown into chaos and and violence and uh and so i think that's part of the the function for this year that said uh, you know i i did, i did feel like I had, I had, you know, I had civil conversations. I, I, I was, I spoke at something called the Purple Tent. I was on a panel with Grover Norquist, who's kind of my ideological opposite in many ways. But you know, I felt like we had a really civil and interesting mm-hmm. conversation about gun gun issues. And I gave a book, copy of my book, to Michael Steele, who is the former um, RNC chair, really thoughtful guy. And so that I felt like there was, there, there, what it taught me is not to go in in a combative mindset but to sort of see it's like where are the bridges that can be built and even with somebody like a grover norquist where might i find common ground to actually affect positive change with somebody who is on the board of the nra and has been very influential on the right right and, and what, then was, the what was the, how did that go how did it go i mean <laughs> you know it's it's a it was a panel discussion i don't feel like we you know had a big breakthrough but i did i feel like it helped me understand some of the core issues in where the where that have been preventing the um, things from moving forward on any sort of responsible gun legislation. And it really boils down to uh, for so many folks on the right who are big Second Amendment champions, taking like the idea of taking away 
their guns is an existential threat. It's a very deep, visceral fear. And so yeah. the idea that liberals are covertly trying to confiscate guns becomes a sort of an existential threat. And while that existential threat is on the table, it makes it impossible to kind of like negotiate something that's more of common sense gun legislation. So we, I was trying to focus with him. It's like, okay, well, how do we, how might we find a place where it's about increasing responsibility around gun ownership and taking the whole confiscation uh, confiscation uh, notion off the table and kind of addressing that directly. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was sort of a practice of, again, of, of when you approach things in a more transpartisan fashion, it doesn't mean I'm suddenly um, like a big advocate for more guns in our society, but I did give a listen to his arguments and I think he made some interesting points. Um, and I think there are, there are more places for common ground and for actual movement and evolution than people assume when we're just in our entrenched positions. Mm-hmm. So, so on the DNC side, I feel like what I took away most inspired me on the DNC, on the DNC side was simply the progress that has been made in the last in my lifetime. You mm-hmm. know, I was I spent time with the LGBT leaders uh, who happened to be kind of a, a portal into the conference for me, and so I went to both caucus meetings and connected with them more often. And so, so the and it was just like so heartening to me to 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 see how much progress that whole movement has made mm-hmm. from 1972. There was one delegate to the D- Democratic convention who was uh, out as a gay person, and there were 700 this time, 11 percent of the mm-hmm. total delegates. And there's 28 trans delegates. There all these different political leaders were coming through the caucus, talking about the progress that had been made, their willingness to keep, you know, stay in the stay in the fight for them. And it was just a really beautiful sense of like, wow, this is just one lifetime, the level of shift that, that our culture has made, and to understand how methodically gay leaders went about that, that really getting involved in democracy at a grassroots level and policy level and, um, you know, different platforms and really mm-hmm. starting to run candidates and just ha- like how, how it really, it was like a, a lar- long-term large effort and how successful it's been and how, how beautiful that is for our whole country. Mm-hmm. And so I felt, I felt really inspired by, by, how much progress has been made, or Barbara Mikulski speaking, uh, you know, from somebody in 1987 was the only woman senator mm. to now having 20, mm-hmm. 20 colleagues. And it's, um, so, so it just reinforced for me that we can evolve our democracy, that we can get beyond the hate and the biases and the discrimination and the imbalances, and that we can make really deep long-term progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we usually do. Right. Stephen, uh, I wanted to also ask you a, uh, who, who are some of the politicians uh, you either experienced directly or have known through the media over the last, you know, over your lifetime uh, eh, that have inspired you, who feel, you, you feel uh, reflect the principles that you espouse? At, the, at the, this year, uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey right. is the one who has most impressed me. I came away from the convention just wowed by him. Not, not just his speech from the stage, which really spoke about bringing love into the center of our politics, but um, also when he spoke elsewhere, and he spoke at a youth council meeting that just blew my socks off, and he just, he shared about his, some of the, the 
things that w- he was most ashamed of as a mayor and basically boiled down to having neglected to continue mentoring some African-American boys, one of which, one of which was killed. Um, and he felt like he could have prevented that if he, if he had kept up his mentoring that he had done before being a mayor. And, uh, and just how devastated he was about that and how vulnerable. And he just talked about sobbing, you know, going to the funeral. He couldn't even handle it. He had to leave the funeral and sobbing in his office and being in the arms of this old woman who just kept, you know, stroking his hair and saying, stay faithful, stay faithful. It was the most raw, vulnerable, and open-hearted I've ever seen a political leader. And it was, it was, it was transcendent. It was mm. amazing. And, and uh, so I feel like I came away thinking, you know, Senator Booker, <laughs> 2024 for president. <laughs> and uh, and because I, also because I feel like he's transmitting not just – he's not just advocating for policies. He's, he's transmitting a different way of being that is spiritually open, that is grounded. He, he still lives, even as a senator, in low-income housing projects, basically, because he wants to be more connected to the people that he's really there to serve. I mean, he's lived on food stamps before, and he's lived, uh, he's lived with homeless people on the street. He's, he's, he's like, he really walks his talk. He's like a kind of Gandhian social mm-hmm. activist who also happens to be, have been a mayor and a senator. So I feel like he's, he's serious medicine for our present, and also he'd be an amazing president, I think. Interesting. Stephen, you've been around, like Dennis and I, and probably most of our listeners, you've been around the uh, contemporary sort of um, cutting-edge spiritual world for a long time. You've you've been involved in some of the more important institutions like Esalen and uh, IONS and California Institute of Integral Studies, and now SHIFT, which you started. So you've had a lot of exposure to um, the, the sort of evolutionary spirituality. In my observation, being politically aware and socially active is a relatively new phase of this. Have you, have you run into people who uh, hold to politics as a sort of uh, maya or a waste of time? And have you seen changes in that world? Like, you know, we've interviewed Marianne Williamson and Andrew Harvey, who are both, you know, great spiritual warriors. And I'm curious about the larger picture. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of been a gradual awakening in many ways of the kind of new paradigm spiritual movements. There's some historical bias to overcome where there's a tendency, there's been a tendency historically to think of spiritual as being removed from the uh, mundane world and, and uh, it's sort of isolating from that rather than engaging it fully. And uh, so I think we have, you know, that's true with a lot of our Western lineage as well as the East. And so I think that now is the time when we're really seeing that, you know, if we're going to operate from oneness, we can't, that it doesn't mean being, sequestered off in, in little like-minded communities, it means putting it into practice in, in some of the hard places too. And if we're really committing to evolving ourselves and serving the world, it means also evolving the, the laws and the social structures And because it has such a huge impact on human health and well-being. And uh, you know, there's like so many lives that hang in the balance of doing that well. And so we can't just abdicate decision-making for the collective to people who are less nobly motivated. We want to bring the most enlightened political wisdom we can into our political process, because that's really how we create a world that reflects the enlightened principles. Now, 
I think that there, you know, to to write a book that is marrying those two things is still a little bit swimming against the current. There's a lot of tendency in spiritual circles to to feel that the political process is too toxic, it's too challenging, it's too polarizing, and they just don't people don't want to engage, and they they want something that's sort of more soothing and sweeter. And I, and I respect sometimes you need to have retreat time you need to sometimes wall off from the news it can be a bit too much and to to reground ourselves and in our depth so that we we're coming with more heart and wisdom into how we engage but i think that ultimately the the only true spirituality has to engage the larger collective issues actively and with wisdom as well but to try to do so in a way that really has heart that is unifying even if you have difference of opinions that there are ways to engage that that ultimately bring people together and so i i feel like it is the leading edge there's there there are definitely people who resonate you know i had i had 50ish friends and allies from the transformational movements who all step forward to promote my book to their lists which is very heartening to me not just as a trying to get more copy sold but it was also a signal that more people are recognizing that evolving our democracy is actually one of the central pillars of of a spiritual life that, that we need to have some attention on or 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 it goes to our detriment and the world's detriment can i follow so up I then <clears throat> go ahead Dennis, yeah. to follow up question yeah. let's flip that Stephen. um do you also have you uh, run into uh criticism or uh, opposition from um, politically oriented people or socially active social activists who might look at your uh, pronouncements and, and your orientation and think of it as too soft or too airy fairy to to you know that is the spiritual is, might detract from the sort of fierce activism that they think is necessary. So are you getting it from both sides? Good point. (laughs) Certainly, certainly. I mean, um, I would say that it's probably a bit less of that than I've anticipated, but I haven't been, you know, I've been on a lot of uh, like-minded shows, but I've also done, you know, a fair number of progressive talk radio and conservatives, and I've done some conservative regional TV in more conservative areas, and you know, so there have been people who definitely don't agree with me on a lot of different points and have sometimes, you know, thought that it's a little bit too much utopian or la-la land mm-hmm. or I've mm-hmm. heard airy-fairy before. But, you know, there's it hasn't been as much as I've anticipated. I think that there's the, the place where it tends to come up is a lot of the leadership on the left, which I tend to identify more with, has kind of marginalized the spiritual conversation and they mm-hmm. see that that is like, oh, it's like important to be more approach politics in a more purely intellectual, um, fact-based, interest-based um, thing. But I, I think that the, what that lacks is, what it lacks ultimately is it doesn't speak to our full being. It doesn't f- speak to our full aspirations. And I think I think people are hungry to have their full self welcomed into the political arena. It's like the tender parts, the heartfelt parts, the dreams that we have for our country. And it's like it's all about kind of a intellectual analysis and and doing battle with the other political mm-hmm. positions. People feel burnt out. They feel uninspired. They and so. Um, and so, you know, with those kind of folks, I, you know, I, I make it clear right away that I'm not advocating for a particular belief system or religion. I, and I use sacred because it sort of cuts across a lot of those religious lines. It's like even a scientist 
often relates to the truth is sacred or, mm. or their family is sacred. It's, it's more of a quality mm. of relationship rather than a, an ideology or, or a belief system. And so I'm, I'm not saying it's like you should become a Christian or become a Buddhist or Hindu. It's more like let's relate to our political process with that same level of reverence and heartfulness and depth that we do with when we, when we use the word sacred about whether it's our religion or our families or our truth or our communities, that there's a sense of like heartfulness that, that is important for us to, to actually discover the key drivers of what makes politics interesting and engaging and enlivening rather than a kind of a, like a distasteful warfare. Very good. Uh, Stephen, uh, I, I, your points are uh, well taken and very timely. Uh, and we recommend people uh, get your book, Sacred America, Sacred World. Uh, and, and I think think more deeply about it. And I think, I, I mean, one final question for you is, so many people that I talk to, whether they're from the left or the right, it really comes down to one or two issues that they're concerned about. And they don't really give much concern for anything else. It could be gun control. It could be abortion pro-life, pro-choice, whatever like that. And uh, they just look for candidates that agree with them on the, a couple of major issues and look at nothing else. Well, what, what do you say to those folks? Well, first of all, I, I honor that everybody's got different motive systems. And it could be, you know, if you've got a particular um, soul's code to make an impact in mm-hmm. an area, I can see that being a, a, a driver of everything you do. You know, it's like if, you, if you're somebody who really wants to see more peace on the planet and reduce reduction of violence, and, 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 you, and you think that um, gun control is really central to that, that might, I could see that being mm-hmm. a key driver of, of a lot of your decision making. I respect that, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to argue mm-hmm. with it, but I, I feel like the more we can, the more we can create the space um, to understand multiple people, multiple perspectives, it actually enriches and deepens our perspective. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is mainly focused, let's say, on the $15 an hour minimum wage, I, I talk about, well, what about thinking about and articulating your, the arguments for that from a more conservative value system? It gives you a whole different lens on that. You could say it's ultimately about reducing the size of government and increasing people's sense of self-reliance and decreasing the tax burden because mm-hmm. we're not having to subsidize people who can't get by. And so there's a way in which you can you can think about issues from multiple vantage points, and it'll enrich and deepen how we talk about them. So even if you're primarily a one-issue person, um, that embracing a bit more complexity and how you address that can help you get more traction. Great. Stephen, thank very you very good. much. Any, any final questions, points, Phil? No, I would ask Stephen if he has any uh, final words for our listeners and um, where they can go to find out more. Yeah. Well, I would just encourage everyone listening to, to, first of all, just see your engagement politically as an extension of or a potential advanced practice of your spiritual practice, and that to really take seriously this bringing in a higher, uh, higher kind of consciousness into our political engagement so that what, however you engage, that it's about uplifting even people who are different than you. The way that Gandhi, for instance, approached the, with the Satyagrahas, the freeing of India, it was very much with an eye to awakening the conscience and lifting the consciousness of the British as well as uh, the Indians. And so 
so I think if we bring that spirit in and we, and we say we need to create a more enlightened political culture and it starts with us and that th- when we do that, then, then a lot of good can happen and to, and to look for allies that, that might be unlikely, that might have very different political uh, viewpoints because that's where real traction can happen if we create a bridge across the divide and then work together in a way that people are not used to seeing. That's where we often see some of the biggest breakthroughs. And so in terms of my book, uh, sacredamerica.net, you can get a bunch of extra um, nice bonuses when you when you buy through there. You can buy it at Amazon, local booksellers. Um, and just I encourage people to not only get a copy for themselves, but also share with their elected officials. I've had people give copies to um, Hillary Clinton, to Barack Obama, sign one to Justin Trudeau. British political leaders, uh, mayors, council members, police chiefs. It's been very interesting that where people have felt called to uh, get copies of the book, too. Great. Very good. And let's also uh, uh, give a shout-out to the Shift Network, which uh, has uh, all kinds of wonderful stuff on it for people to participate and advance their, their spiritual lives. Well, what's the website there? Great. What's the website? TheShiftNetwork.com. Great. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time, and uh, keep up the good work. We really appreciate you, you coming on. Great. Thank you. It's been a joy. You keep up the great work as well for the two of you. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Stephen.